This special four-part series of A Cure for Baldness is proudly brought to you by Grant Walker Electrical, specialising in hospitality and commercial constructions, renovations and fit-outs. Contact the team at Grant Walker, 0415 091 546 or email au. You're listening to A Cure for Baldness and welcome back. And you, we are here with our special guest, Damien Tomlinson. You're here with Silky and Bush. Silky just went out and ran around the block. I snuck out I for was a inspired. quick... I snuck out for a quick chicken burger. I couldn't believe the endorphins. In all seriousness, Tomo, that was just, uh, that was riveting. I mean, the journey you just took us and the listeners on um, obviously stopped Silky and I on our tracks. You know, we, we obviously interview a lot of people, a lot of talking. It's fascinating. And I, I can't wait to get to the next one, which is a game changer. But the detail and the in-depth stories is just amazing. So thank you so much for that. Thanks, mate. It's good to be able to go back and sort of think about some of these things, you know, I mean, I've had to change my mindset with where I'm going and direction wise, you know, like I open my mind up to, to different things. So it's kind of, it's kind of fun to go back and touch on, touch on some of this, you know. Yeah. Well, our listeners are going to love chapter two, preparing to be a soldier, but, but we're building towards, you know, I suppose what we now titled chapter three, the game changer. And, you know, you're with a highly strung, um, highly intense group of men that are trained with precision, you know, the qualities of the commando, they're sharp, they're confident, they're supremely intellectual, they're adaptable, they're fit, they're tuned, they're ready for anything. Can you talk us through when you're in Afghanistan? Yeah, I mean, that it's Afghanistan through like sort of an interesting spanner in the works of, you know, hierarchy and the way things worked, you know, there was, because we went through a period of time where I think it was 30 odd years where Australia wasn't involved in a, in a major sort of conflict. You know, I think we did a little bit of stuff in Korea, but, you know, Vietnam probably would have been the yeah, last one. Vietnam, you know? Vietnam, then Iraq, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, Iraq won. And we didn't do too much in Iraq one or Iraq two. They weren't huge for Australian deploy, like special operations deployments. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't, when you talk about some of the guys about what they did compared to Afghanistan, you know, it wasn't really, wasn't really as, as big of a conflict. So we'd had that huge period of time where it was all about getting time up in the army. That was what you used to say. You know, you'd someone would say, ah, get some time up. How long have you been in? You'd kind of get that one. And then, you know, you get these guys who'd been saying, get get some time up for 20 years. And then there's a kid who's had two deployments to Afghanistan, be able to walk through the door. And then all of a sudden, who's the boss in that room? You know, the sergeant who's never deployed or the private who's got two trips under his belt. You know, like it was, a, and that was, it was a real, real sort of, it was an interesting environment. Yeah, yeah. You know, like you had, to, and that was, what all of a sudden became the the real thing. You get these guys with the mistakes of what they'd done on their different trips, you know, and that, that was always, it was always a huge, there was a huge, you know, it's a reputation and ego, you know, it was a schoolroom, but on a bigger, on a bigger scale, just with a group of like testosterone filled ego driven men, you know, it was, which was great, but it would put you in some funny situation. You know, when everyone's tired, you know, when everyone's really, really tired, you're all exhausted and stuff like that. Your fuse can get that little bit short and, yeah, of course. and different things can do their thing, but you've still got to be professional while you're doing that. You can't just drop your bundle and lose your shit. Elsewise, you know, people look at you as, you know, how can we trust that guy? How can we trust him when stuff really gets hard? Because, you know, people's perception of hard is always is always sort of different, you know. So, but what, with something that what, like you might find hard or whatever, I, I might find a cakewalk, something you find easy, I you know, I struggle with, you know, and that, I think that, and that's the thing in any team, everyone brings their own specific strength to the table, you know, and good team commanders can isolate who does what really well, who you're going to need to watch at what stage and who's going to be doing the different things. So, 
we had um we had a situation when we were over there where I'd snapped. We got we got more rain in that that desert than they got in like it was it was thirty years or something. Where they get the statistics from, I don't know. It's I mean it's similar to the statistics on Facebook. They're all fact <laughs> yeah. type thing. But they're like, oh, it's the most rain they've got in thirty years, and it turned this like dust, which. I swear I'm still finding dust in stuff from over there now, but like there's had this really fine dust that turns into this quagmire of shit when it gets wet because it never does. It's this really silty type sort of stuff, which just was wreaking havoc with the the cars, the SRVs that we're in, you know, and I snapped one tail shaft when we were doing something and we had to pull the whole gearbox out. This is out in the field, out in the middle of the middle of the dash. And then, that uh, was a couple of days later we'd had that had had the same thing happen and i remember having i like yell with the guy who's calling me a piece of shit hey fucking piece of shit learn to drive a fucking car I'm like, hey, come over here and say we're kind of at each other mm. that little bit and then walked away from him because it's you know you got to just turn your back be professional you can lose your shit and maybe mouth a little bit but obviously within within sort of reason Rick i think i always had too big of a mouth when i was when i was young anyway but in all teams, be it workplaces, team team environments, not everyone gets on with each other. But in the theatre of war, you have to because you have to trust the guy next to you. Yeah. How, how do you deal with that? Man, the the kid who I've I've got so much respect for this guy now. I just call, kind of call him the kid. I can't really say say his name. I think he is out of the army now, but he'd had he'd had two deployments. He did some fucking amazing things. Like he's on a Mark Nineteen, which is a it's an automatic like a grenade launcher type thing which you get these boxes of 40 that you'd be able to put in the side of a thing and you go thump 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 and it would just launch these 40 mil like um grenades yeah bombs yeah something. like and it used to have like the wombat gun that you could have with that would just fire one at a time this thing was like it was just supercharged sexist. yeah just fully loaded one but I remember like our team came out of pointing at a window which we were getting fired at from a village you couldn't directly see where it was. You know, he's like, just, we got to clear that room. You know, that room, like, just to get the feeling there's something dark in there, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, he's got the laser range finder. He goes, yeah, it's about 400 away. And the kid pulls back and just goes, thump, fires one that goes into the window. And the window, no shit, was probably like, I mean, it looked like it might have been one, one and a half by one and a half meters. You know, and then you just see it go, boom. You go, that window, look across at each other. You're like, you kidding? Like, yeah, man, you got to be kidding me. Wow. you got to, wow. Yeah, yeah. It's, that's the precision, huh? The way, yeah, the way to do it, you know. And, he was, and just call cool, calm and collect right? Yeah, but we used to hate when we were back at Holsworthy, we were at each other. You know, we were at each other the whole time. We'd just be mouthing, just going, all right, cool. Eventually, we thought, it seemed to everyone like it was going to be one of those occasions where when everyone gets out on the piers, those two are going to go. You know, it's going to be, it'll get four, five or six beers deep and then they're going to, they're going to, sort their problem out where they are or take it outside. It's just going to be one of those things. Which is common, right? Yeah. In any footy yeah, team. Yeah, yeah, that's it. The, the men are going to end up sorting it out and then we'll see. But when we've actually deployed overseas, and I wasn't kind of ready for it. I expected him to still have his smart mouth and then me to have the, well, back your, back your mouth up with your hands and you're good to go type idea. But when we got overseas, it was funny. The whole team were into us about it because we kind of became nice. friends. We got really close over there. You know, that was as soon as we deployed – because he he'd he'd been there. He was he was gunner of, of my car as, that I was driving, and I was like, "Look, you know, you've been here before, mate. 
what do we do? How do you, what did you find work? You know, and then he'd give his little things and all of a sudden it's not about age or size or anything like that. He's been there. This works. This experience. is what, yeah, he's got that experience. You know, this is what worked for, for me on the last car we were in. This was that. And you have that respect level where it doesn't matter what your ego says. You just drop that and okay, cool. Well, this, well, this works. All right. So how do I do that? Yep. Sweet. You know, and you'd have the, uh, the other driver who'd done the trip before it, you know, so we would do it. Then you'd go over and you'd try to pick up little nuggets of wisdom that you could at different stages and everyone would be like, you know, everyone's sort of putting putting together for the greater good. You put all those personal things sort of aside and, you know, we got along really well. Once once you took both of our egos out of the equation, we we got along really well. But it was funny that the team hassling is about just going like, look at it. He's like, honestly, you look like we're going to turn around and you're going to both be asleep in the same bunk. Like, seriously, guys. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's funny, like it, it just, it seems to be a common theme about adapting, like just adapting to your surrounds, be it, you know, personality clashes, you, you got to get on, you got to find a way to get on, or, yeah. you know, and, you know, the conflict and, and all the different things. There's a, it's just, for me, that's a, it's a common theme in everything you, you tell us. And the next, the next question, I suppose, when we're going to talk about adapting is you go out on a mission, you're, you're in a convoy of 14 vehicles and you're in the, the fifth vehicle. Tell us a little bit about the, the mission or, or what it was that you're up to that night. Yes, our job, from what our, our unit does, some pretty surgical sort of things, you know. I mean, its its initial mission statement was to conduct large-scale offensive operations beyond the scope and capability of other ADF force elements. That's word for word. Give us, give us the, the dumbed-down version. But, yeah, what what happens is we were doing what's called a direct action. Which you're is doing what no one else can do is what you're saying. I. I mean, anyone else could probably do it if they put. No, but I mean, in the in the defence force, yeah. you are at yeah, the top yeah, of the game, was... and you have to clear a path, yeah, and get everything ready. So, not the average joke. So, You've been highly trained for this as yeah, well. Yeah, basically, what what we were doing was a hit on a set of a set of compounds. There were two compounds that had been isolated. We'd got like the aerial footage of what it looked like during the day, what it was going to look like at night, how to get there, what to do. So, the other platoon, which had. Some really, really, really great guys in it. You know, Cam Baird is the 100th VC. He was in that platoon. Yeah. And, you know, I remember him from the advanced sort of course that we did, the advanced close quarter battle, advanced CQB. I remember him coming in and, um, like, this was day one. I thought he was directing stuff. He's like, all right, boys, so today we've got to do this, 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 and this, and blah, blah, blah. He had a really subtle lisp to the way that he spoke. But I remember him saying he's a massive guy too. You know, I had no idea that Betty was the Betty who, you know, did all of those sort of things. I'm like, who's this guy? Is he like directing stuff or something? And they're like, no, no, he's that's that's just Betty. You know, it's just the way he is. You know, he was in that platoon. But that what they were doing was going down to do the hit on the actual target. So they were gonna do make entry onto onto a compound, do the drills and find, fix and finish the target essentially. So what we were doing was moving with our sniper sniper troop that we had up into an overwatch position on the side of a mountain, which was basically if things got too hairy or there were more people than our intelligence had given us were going to be down in that village, we were basically their fire support and then support. We had a, a method of getting down to the village, I, th I think, from what I hear. You know, I mean, I don't, I don't remember it because, you know, we were driving up and as you say, you know, I was a fifth car in the convoy. As we're driving up, it's about 11, 11.30 at night, you know, our... Um, our snipers had moved out and peeled out, started their drill that they were doing, you know, or that's the impression I get just from piecing together different stories that people told me. And then like I was driving our car, there was three of us in it. I mean, the guy sort of next to me kind of looked like Kung Fu Panda, looked a lot like him. And then the 23 year old, the little kid yeah. in the back and then both the, um, we'd hit like an, an IED 
which we're no, still not, you know, AD can mean so many different things, you know, now there's um, massive rockets and stuff like that. They'll use that They'll put nails and things like that in just to sort of increase the damage. We think that mine was a black market Russian anti-tank mine. And it was buried buried into the ground, and we don't know how long it had been there for. But you obviously couldn't see that it, there was no disturbance to the ground, you know, because we if there was, we wouldn't have driven over the thing. Mm. You know, no one would go anywhere near disturbed ground. That's one of those attention to detail type things. And when we so when we're going up, I was like the fifth car, and then um, we're not sure what happened because I don't I don't remember any of it. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember the set of orders. You know, like that that argument I had with the guy. The only reason why I remembered it was because he thought it was the last thing he'd ever get to say to me. You right. know, so we hit it and it took my right leg off above the knee. My left leg was damaged really bad, like extremely badly from the thing on the way down. My right elbow was hanging out. Forearm was broken, two bones in the hand. Um, my left left arm was broken and facing an odd way. My nose had tried to, like the steering wheel, we think, because the car just got peeled open like a can. Had just had torn my lip and tried to rip my nose off, which is awesome because like, I had surgery on it and now it looks so much better than it did before we went. <laughs> I had noticed that when I was uh, doing some of my research. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So much we, better looking bloke now. Yeah, oh, definitely. I mean, like, I, we used to get, I used to get hit all the time. Every single kickboxing session, I'd get hit in the nose and it would, there'd be claret. Yeah. Every single time. But the, the amazing thing with the reason why we think it was the, an anti tank mine is because they're kind of, you can shape charges, you can make them go in a specific direction. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of intricate sort of things when it comes to the way that demolitions work, but that blade basically bl- would blow out the track, the track of a tank, but took, did all the damage to me. But the guy who was next to me, who's closer than you are now, was um, he had a couple of scratches. It's and amazing. Blew out it's an amazing. Ear. So I blew out an eardrum, and that's it. And, and just another question: When you're in convoy, you're not following in the in the tracks of the. Of yeah. the car, the car in front of you. Yeah, yeah. All of us were, tra- were traveling in those tracks. Yeah. So that w- that was the thing. Like I, I was behind mine. I had to ask that question, you know, after when they got back and I'd sort of spoken to everyone. I'm like, mate, all right, tell me the truth. Did I go to sleep? Yeah. Or what happened? And he's like, mate, it's it's indescribable. I was looking at it really closely because we were getting into where we were coming into position, you know. And I didn't, I didn't. Apparently, I didn't stray off the wheel tracks, but we think that. The car, a couple of cars up or something, had basically bumped a rock or something of that sort and my car had just started to sort of go up on the side of it and right. give it enough of a jolt down that it would set it off because it baffled everyone how it could work because, yeah, we did, we just didn't know. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of one of those things that no one, no one really knows and everyone's got their own version of events. And no one will ever know, really. Yeah. You, you never will know. Yeah, that's it. We just know that it was a massive crater and it tore the car and I like, just ripped the car apart. And, and the bloke in the back, how did he fare? He got he got blown out. He woke up second. So the first one was the panda. He woke up and he was kind of like, he was shaking, like, but because it, it knocked him out. And then, whoa. And then, you know, the kid woke up and was screaming a bit, you know, like, kind of like he said, just, ah, huh. Like I, I don't exactly know, but then, then they kind of got out. There was, but every, but the whole convoy had stopped, you know. And I mean, I kind of fell for. I think the first time I fell for one of the boys with it, like in a, just you know, Rams home. What they've sort of seen is, you know, when he said, you know, he he'd asked the boss, he's gone like, boss, what's your fascination with, you know, like he's kind of gone, look, boss, if I if we were doing this, 
they'd done the recon of where we were going, going to go that night. It came back down and sort of said, you know, if I was going to booby trap anything, that's this is sort of the, the area that I'd do it. And the boss just sort of looked at him and said, look, mate, what's your fascination with sweeping the side of hills? Like, you know, I, I kind of I agree with the boss's decision. You know, I mean, you got to make a call and getting down, getting the boys, the other platoon onto target is the most important thing. So that's where we had all our mine detecting capability. Not that it would have made much difference depending on the type of mine that mine was. So there's three of you in the vehicle. Uh, the guy you call Pandas sort of knocked out, a, a, you know, now a 23-year-old kid in the back yeah. gets thrown out. The um, SRV or ATV is blowing in half, your arms hanging off, your left leg's basically It's gone, gone. it's gone, yeah, vanished. Your right leg is, sorry, the right leg's gone, your left leg's really badly damaged and your other arm's broken. Yeah. Your face has almost been, you There's know, ripped blood, off. Blood everywhere off. and stuff, yeah, so the bone hanging out the right elbow. But he was trying to hold me down as well as trying to run away. And he's described it to me once it's gone. I had, he had me in like a full mount position because he was kind of trying to sit on my waist yeah. a little bit and then just push like a, a full mount if you're in the end. Mm, yeah, yeah. And then was trying to hold my shoulders down. I was trying to punch him off the ground. That's to protect you from yeah. losing blood. Yeah, so or... that I didn't, I didn't move because I was trying, apparently I was just in pieces. all over the shop. Yeah. So I was kind of gasping for air. Is that, is that Scott? No, that was that was the the panda was actually oh, right. holding me down. But Scott was Scott was in the process of that. Like he jumped out of a moving car to get over to us, apparently. So like there's there's so many different viewpoints of the story that happened. But yeah, I kind of now I'm starting to go towards like Tim's of well. And then when he said, you know, there's that when he describes how my hands were hitting his face, it kind of made me feel a little bit green when he was describing it because imagine like just opening your hands but i was trying to hold fists and punch him with one of my bones was facing out sort of 45 degrees the wrong way and this elbow he he couldn't see that he couldn't see it at the time because he's wearing cans but that elbow was had a bone hanging out that he could hear grinding when i was trying to sort of hit his face to get him off me so yeah it's a bit do you remember anything from this at all do you have any Uh, memory no i got nothing you know i mean that's the it's all sort of based on – I've tried to find it as well because I find it fascinating, you know, the human mind can, if something is extremely traumatic, black it out, you know. And apparently I was, you know, I was screaming and there was a few – I like me screaming but moaning or me making noises, you know, there was shit happening. That took a while for it to come to, but I had like a closed head injury as well, which when you've seen a guy, you know, you watch, you watch the fights or whatever, they'll get knocked out and then the ref wakes him up or whatever. Like it was, the ref's there and then they were like, what happened? Yeah. Did I win? You know, that sort of thing. I think that it's a similar sort of thing, but on a bigger scale. So I was out for that bit longer. And by the time my brain could have got to the stage where it could function, I mean, I was only on the ground for 56 minutes or something like that, just less than an hour from when the first call went in to when I got out of there, which they call the golden hour. And then all the boys had to really pull their A game out and, you know, keep us keep us alive for it and put us on onto the chopper. So, yeah, it's... It's 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 phenomenal. Just sitting here listening to that story, I'm, like, I'm speechless. I, I mean, when when you when you describe the injuries you had, it, it's it's amazing that we're sitting here talking to you. Uh, you yeah. know, it's it's phenomenal. So I mean, the work that must have went into keeping you alive, I'm speechless. Yeah, Just thinking about the work that they've done on you at that time, especially it's staggering. You're, yeah, when you add into as well, like there's you know all that that attention to detail when it comes to the medical training. You know, is going to be going to be paying off. You've got the Platoon medics, everyone has a specialty skill in the special forces. You're either a communications, demolitions, or medical. 
they're, and they're like a specialist there. Like you're added on specialty courses that go with you getting qualified. So the kid in the back, he was a medical. Um, we had a platoon medic, but it still was one of those things. Everyone knows when they're doing stuff, they've got to turn on their A game for it. You know, I mean, Scotty, Scotty was a medical, a medical specialist as well. So he was coming down, he got onto the scene and was doing different things. But it was one of those situations, you know, it's an hour, but it's not the same guys on you for the whole hour. You know, they had one bloke who sort of controlled the scene who everyone has a lot of respect for. He had a citation for gallantry, um, basically tapping, you know, tapping people out and going, look, you're getting tired, all right, move out. But then you throw on top of that, that through their earpieces the whole time, our interpreters, because we can hear what they're saying when mm -hmm. they speak across their radios because it's unsecured radio, mm -hmm. you know, and this is in the 60s. Um, so we can hear what they're, we can hear what they're saying and they're basically trying to organize a force to get together to come up and have a crack at us because you could see by that stage, everyone had gone to white light. They're like, well, Damien's going to die unless we can see exactly what's happening when we're cutting all his gear off him and that. And um, so there I am, you know, the white light, white light on the side of a hill when everything else is pitch black, there's no electricity in their village. When everyone's, you know, those white light on the side of hills are pretty easy target. Yeah. No one's moving. They know where that was planted as well. So they know the best way to get to it. So for people to be still have their earpieces in, be hearing all this information be, come be, to them. Be waiting for a, a, an attack. Yeah. yeah. Your weapons down, you yeah. know, the first thing you want to be is weapons up in a situation like that. So yeah, it's. You get medevac to Germany. How long was it? I imagine before you kind of realised you're in hospital, you you're in a pretty bad way. Yeah, first of all, first it was Bastion, which is a UK base in the same province we're in, called Helmand Province. Um, Forty eight hours, they they got me stable enough to fly to Germany. Wow. So, I think forty eight. They're kind of loose figures because you know they've been told them told the stories a couple of different times. Yeah. But Andrew Ellis, who was the surgeon who worked on me, sort of read. I remember then this was years after, like three three years after or something, he read my notes of what had happened. And he's like, you went through six times the average person's volume of blood in the first, like, operation. I'm like, so the first, what, days or whatever? And he goes, no, the first operation only lasted for like an hour 20 or something. You know, and then they had to put me on a bed and see whether I could survive, like my body could heat back up. And then he, um, yeah, he sort of said, you know, they got you stable enough, then flew off to Germany. And I mean, I can vaguely... Remember having a conversation in hospital, like my mum my when we were talking about it, you know, was, was basically saying, you know, because they flew over to Germany, my mum, my dad, my sister and my uh, brother-in-law. And they sort of said, you know, there's, we, we held your phone out and all the boys had just got back off one of the jobs that they were doing and we were all, we're all talking, having a laugh and stuff like that. I can't really remember too much around that. It wasn't until we are in, like I'd flown back to Australia We'd got the thing back and I was in North Shore Private. I was in intensive care for 10 days, which they said I was pretty obnoxious. Like that was a long 10 days for all the nurses in there. I was just like, who are you and why should you be touching me? Yeah. You know, like it's kind of, I just had a <clears throat> real attitude apparently. I had more attitude than anyone they've had in 30 years. What so. was the time frame there just from, so from, from the, the incident, incident to, yeah. to arriving back in Sydney? I, I think it was... Seven or eight days in Germany all? for, yeah, I wasn't in wow. Germany for long. Then I was in the ICU here and they had, they were having trouble because my brain was coming back too. When I was in the ICU here, you know, with the, the balance between painkillers and a few different things. And I can vaguely remember them rolling me over. You had to shit in like a tin and whatever. And like, but it was, it was, it's odd because I went down there. I had a, 
an infection from something like a couple of years ago and they took me in to get a pick line, which is where they basically put a line in under, underneath your arm that goes the whole way because the antibiotics were so strong. They have to have a pick line that goes the whole way to your heart, you know, and then so, so that the volume of blood in there is big enough it won't, so it won't collapse veins because some of the stuff they put in here is pretty hardcore. They took me down and I'm like, so this is the ICU. They go, well, yeah, don't you remember? Because it's kind of odd. You were conscious at the time. You're like, well, no, I don't. Which room was mine? She's looked at me like as if I was pulling a leg. Like she honestly thought, is this guy taking the piss? You know, like first I said, I didn't, I don't know who you are. I'm not sure why I should. I was one of the nurses who was working on you in ICU. You know, she looked at me as if I'd like, honestly, I'd, yeah, on a joke. Yeah, and I was like, oh, "No, which room was my We went and put. They showed me the room that was in the corner. They put me over there because I was that, that on edge. You know, with some of the things that I was saying and doing. You know, it was it was funny because I was sort of sitting there going, I "Honestly, don't remember any of them." And I, the guy who they'd seen had done. I'd done sixty minutes after it, and they're like, "That's a completely different guy than we had down here." You know, for yeah. the whole time, and maybe a reaction, natural reaction from your body and your brain trying to sort of refocus. But yeah, I think so. I'm do you see of, any of those people of, now? Do you see any of the people that looked after you? Have you, have you made contact? Not a, not a huge, not a huge amount. I mean, that time I I did, I went down and I was like. When I was getting that pick line put in, I remember seeing a few of the nurses. I'm like, I had one of them that walked in and just basically gave me this staunch stare, like looked me up and down and then walked out. I was like, so I'm guessing I knew her as well. <laughs> you know, and they're like, she's like, yeah, 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 you weren't that, you weren't the nicest to any of us. I'm like, well, how bad was it? She's like, you're probably the most obnoxious in their 30-year history. Wow. Like, wow, okay. So the next one that came in, I was like, she was looking at me with this same sort of, Scale. I'm not happy. Yes, gal. I was like, look, all right. I was probably going through some stuff at that time. Um, I'm sorry if I yeah, if I have offended you in any way. You obviously know me. I don't remember any of the nurses from here or any of that. I really appreciate the work that you guys do. Yeah. You know, I just want you to know, you know, I, I know the value of it. She's like, oh, cool. Well, you know, we accept payment in, you know, chocolates and flowers. I said, how about two legs for walking out the door and feeling comfortable? <laughs> And she like, you just see the, the gravity sort of hit her. I felt bad for saying that because it was just kind of a reaction that, that came with it. I think it was that defensive at the time. And then, yeah, she said, oh, uh, yeah, okay, I guess that'll do. And I think both of us sort of realized, Leo learned something a little bit from that. Mate, all the training that you'd picked up along the way, and I'll say it again, adapting to change, did that help you when you were recovering? Yeah, well, we, I think that, you know, work, working out as well, you know, the pain was this small thing, knowing that every every battle that you're in is kind of a mental one. You know, it's all your mind will always be able to reset those boundaries. I think that made me that little bit more confident with everything that I was doing. So situations, especially having that mindset of going, well, the answer is yes, and then I'll just work out how to do it. You know, like I had, we had... um the special operations commander came in and was giving me a similar speech that I got off the RSM in the army and the chief of the army when they'd come into the, the hospital, which was, was kind of cool. Cause by that stage I was coherent. I had like, um, I had a, I had a fake name, which was really bomb like, which is cool. Cause there was a lot of media doing, they were looking to sort of rag on the army for the type of cars that were in over there, which was still the most useful for the situation. We had to have good situational awareness. You know, if you want to know where a shot's come from, you got to be able to hear Right, so we were. Um, I I got that fake name, so it would keep me away from. I got the specific journalist who were chasing it. There was like three or four that were on a on a list, but so I had a I had a fake name, which I thought was 
thought it was pretty cool, you know, we we're in hospital. But then when, you know, the special ops commander came in, he was he was dressed like a, you know, a civilian and all that, and he had a chat and I was like, mate, I want you I want you to do something for me. He goes, What's that? I said, I want to be the first thing my guys see when they get off a plane. Like when they land home. It's gone really i think he went to expectation management mode and at that stage i hadn't tried even a prosthetic on you know i'm like i want to actually be standing i want to be standing there so that when they look at me i want it to look like nothing's happened you know and that then he's kind of well okay if if you can i can arrange it and get it done i'm like okay cool that's that's good and then i had that the next bit you know where i'd give myself at least a an end game, but the amount of time that I sat in that room, you know, it's comfortable. You got aircon. There's no aircon in the desert. You know what I mean? Like there's food, there's hot food, there's decent food. If I wanted, I could order twice. You know, I mean, you're not always really that hungry. I lost a heap of weight when I was in hospital just because you don't have a huge appetite. But yeah, like like I'd spent a lot of time just sitting in there going, well, what are the boys going through now? You know, they'd done such, like I knew I would look down every day and just go, how the, how did they do this? Like, honestly, how do you keep someone who's in the state that I am alive for that long? Like, it just mystified me how good people could be on game day. Did you you set, sorry, did you set little goals along the way as part of the recovery? Is that how you kind of chose to to take the challenge on? Well, everything, like when you you look at big sort of things, you know, the mountain always looks a lot harder than working out where you're going to stop at the mountain on the way. You know, climbing Everest, if you didn't know there's a base camp one and stuff like that is a really big task until your workout is just broken down into bite-sized sort of portions so yeah the first one was then getting the prosthetics and part of it was frustrating you know you've got to wait you know i was being told especially with the way that my elbows were and like arms just had it plated you know that you couldn't you're not supposed to be lifting weights or doing any of this it was really hard for the mental thing you've gone from working out twice a day to deploying, to doing what you, to, you can, to then going, okay, now well, now you've got to slow down, just rest it out is the only thing that's going to help and that's the last thing you want to do. You know, you want to get back amongst it, but you set those little goals of, okay, well, first it's trying this prosthetic leg on, then it's working out what I can do. And in, my, in the back of my mind, I'm going, all right, as long as I get one of them, I can probably steal crutches and I'll be able to get there. Like, so I had all the, you're always thinking of these different plan contingencies. Yeah, yeah. yeah, all the plan B's the whole way along. So you're like, all right, cool. I get to that milestone. Then I can do this. Then I can do that. Then it was always, there's always like, you know, cause sometimes I think it's disheartening when you're working towards a goal that is as big as something that would be walking or something like that. You go, okay, I've got to do it in sort of bite-sized steps. But if you keep looking at what's, what's this doing and how's it impacting the end state, you can end up kind of doing your own head in, yeah. You know, over the process of it. So sometimes you just got to go. It is what it is, and then. Are, are, are you in a survival more. mindset? Are you kind of composed? Are you like you say? It's the bite-sized mentality that does get you towards the end goal. But is it still sort of element of you know your shock? I mean, there's so many range of emotions. I could imagine only from the outside you're going through. What were you going through? I mean, you put it was kind of kind of odd. I still looked at myself as the same guy who deployed. You know, which was odd. I couldn't honestly understand why people were treating me any differently. And like, why all of a sudden have you got me wrapped in cotton wool? Like what? You know, I was, I'm pretty sure I can handle all this. Cool. Let's just, yeah. It kind of made me feel a little bit strange that people were. Over-caring. Yeah, kind of being a little bit too. Overcompensating for you. Yeah, yeah. Which, you know, I, under, I understood like <clears throat> later on I started to get 
why people do that, but it wasn't until we um, first went went to the snow. You know, we had a guy there called uh, his name's Liam Haven, and he, you know, in Iraq they had an RPG go off kind of right next to their convoy. He went trying to put his hands up, and a bit got him right in the bridge of his nose, which made him blind, left him blind. He had two percent vision or something in one of his eyes, like a really low percentage of vision. Can only make out shadows. And I, it was only then that I realized how often I say, oh, man, have you seen, like I didn't realize how often, you know, in group conversations, I make references to movies. You know, I had no idea how often I do it until I was like, shit, man. All right, look, I'm sorry, bro. I don't mean to, you know, I'm, I'm not talking shit or whatever. I just, I didn't realize how how often I say, you know, have you seen or have you done or something like that. And then I was like, and he goes, no, nah, man, it's, I'm, I'm always comfortable with it. And I started thinking about it. I'm like, I'm really overcompensating for what's happening. And I understood how many people had done those different things just out of solely being that little bit uncomfortable when they come in. You know, I have one of the boys come in and show us like this the book of like wheelchairs, racing wheelchairs and stuff. He's like, man, you could be the next Kurt Fernley. You know, your upper body's good, yeah, you fit yeah. and all this. And I'm just like, so could you. <laughs> And you go, what? I said, you don't have to be handicapped to race a wheelchair. You know, we've all seen that fucking ad where they all play basketball and stand up. Yeah. And he's like, like you kind of, he was embarrassed a bit that he'd sort of put it out. But then, you know, and I, but I look, he was just trying to get us through what was it? Yeah, 100%. It was a tough stage, you know, so it came from the right place. But to me, I still couldn't get it. I'm like, no, I'm still Damien. You know, it was, that was the same thing on that, on that trip where I met Liam, they'd taken us down. They had like an initiative where they were trying to find winner. Winner Paralympians, you know, the motivated, driven, have that sort of army or military mentality because you've got some of those things sort of wired that you got to you got to train and to try and make someone an elite athlete. They have to understand those few, those, those sort of concepts when it comes to the self discipline, when it comes to maintaining a particular level of fitness, you know, which came second nature to us in our job, you know, which I was really lucky with. Went down and it was I had my legs sorted. It's like, all right, I want to feel like me again. You know, I wanted to, I wanted to surf again because, you know, I'd, I'd grown up doing it. I spent so much time doing it. I'd, and I didn't want to sit in a sit ski, which is like a bucket seat thing. And I just didn't didn't mix well with me. Yeah, the things go really fast. I have a lot of respect for the guys that do it. They hook in them. They go faster than most skiers on a hill. Be like, I'm like, I, to me, it's just too much compromise. You know, it's too distant from who... You really I see me. I see myself as a, as a person, you know. So I, I wanted to surf, but I knew it was always going to be hard. Like it's a logistical nightmare. Then, to get the option to snowboard again, and like I used to go and spend time with my mates before we deploy, because you usually get because we knew when we were going, we had like the three weeks before it off. So like, and then we came back. There, there was one or two weeks where we had pretty intense sort of prep work before it, but. I had those three weeks. I spent them all with like those weeks with my mates. One of the mates happened to be in Whistler in Canada. So he got sort of, he got two out of those three weeks and we were snowboarding together and he said something really cool to me over there. We, um, he was the, he was the best man at my wedding as well. But like when, when I was over there, I sort of said, mate, you know, we're both 28 years old. Like I've got, you know, I've got my place and all, all the furniture in it. I've got my car, everything's sorted, you know, like my life sort of sorted out. What, when you get back from Whistler, what are what are you gonna do? You know, I mean, 
there's a time where we've got to sort of step up. So I was taking this, this mature approach that I'd never had at any other stage of my life. All of a sudden, I was coming off holier than now to hit to my mate just going, oh, mate, so what are you going to do with your life? And how are you going to sort that out? I'm kind of giving him that one. And we were sitting there and we we're both just having a beer down at the base of the whistle. I remember him sort of turning and looking at me and just going, mate, the last thing I want to do is for us to be in a nursing home when we're old, to have to look at each other and go, mate, I sat on the sidelines. And it had, it's had such a profound impact. It was like, wow, yeah. Okay, you know, and that kind of told me a different thing There's a, about that whole having a go type yep. idea. You know, that was just a way of saying it that I think was kind of just re just reshaped the way that I looked at it really putting putting things out there and how, how I was going to attack sort of the rest of life. And that was right before the deployment. So, you know, then when we get, when I get down to the snow, you know, I'm reminded of what, how much fun we had when we were in Canada, when we were snowboarding and stuff. And I was like, all right, I'm going to ride again. This is going to be great. We had a, one of the officers come across and goes, mate, you're just going to have to deal with it. You're never going to ride a snowboard again. I hadn't even strapped my legs on. Like I hadn't put anything together. I had my, my legs at that stage was strapped not strapped, not strapped in. They had snowboard boots on them. They had snow pants on. I'm sitting there in my undies in the car park with just these socket sort of liner things on, ready to put them on. And then this guy comes across and says that. I'm like, who the fuck are you to say that? He's like, oh, you know, I'm warrant officer, blah, blah, blah. So I'm a sir. I said, okay, cool. Are you a winter sport expert? Are you, um, you know, are you handicapped in any way? Is there, is there anything that's gone? No, no. I just, so you time people that are doing basic fitness assessments. And you're going to tell me what I can and I can't do? You, my friend, can go fuck yourself. And then he sort of said something back. I We started, like a full-scale argument happened from that because he wasn't happy. Oh, you're being insubordinate. Oh, what? He's ex army too, isn't he? No, he was army at that yeah, stage as well. Okay. And yeah. I was too. So it was kind of, I was being insubordinate. But I was like, no, fuck him. I'm not having that sort of shit. Like, but you've now moved almost outside that army realm and gone to a more of a human experience, particularly yeah. what you've been through. So, yeah, 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 you're getting you're getting a bit closer. And it was just I was like, my snowboarding coach come over and goes, look, well, yeah, we can get you up. I reckon I can get you doing it within a, a day or so. You know, I'm like, oh, man, I just wanted the opportunity to be me again. You know, it's not about falling down. It's not about getting up. It's not about any of that. I just wanted to feel what it was like to be able to turn again. So, for our listeners, can you describe for us? where you do attach, you know, your legs or your prosthetics so they can get a real visual. Because when you talk about compromise and some of the quirkiness and adapting in this this game-changing chapter of your life, I guess it's hard for people to fathom, oh, yeah, he's getting up on a snowboard. There's a lot of people that you see that are, um, you know, got a disability or had accidents that used the sit chair. Yeah. And you made a choice not to. Yeah, mine was, because I, well, I was, I was, I was more, it was just kind of for me, you know, as a recreational feel-good you know, yep. I wanted to feel what it was like to ride again. And the, to me, that was just standing. You know, that's how it would feel sort of the best. And I still, to this day, I don't like using a wheelchair at all. You know, I'd rather get around with my legs on. And, you know, yeah, I had like a liner with a sort of mountain bike shock type spring as a knee. Yep. Which, you know, it's an actually professionally designed knee. They, yep. They're brilliant. And then went down to a, a different foot that would sit in. You know, you put your snowboarding boot onside that, pack it out as much as you can, and then bindings and everything like that you just set up the same as you would normally yep and then you can adjust stuff like the, the feet or whatever sort of accordingly so your right leg is off at the knee and you've got this amazing um, i suppose it's carbon fiber sort of knee with a spring and sort of moves biomechanically or like yeah, a well, knuckle. That, that one's way above the knee there's like yep. only 
six six inches, eight inches of bone, eight inches of bone left from the hip down. So there's enough to attach from the hip to a leg. That, yeah. Can you control that leg to? Like, does your hip get sore? I mean, do you get the same sort of feelings you would have when you were able bodied? No, nah, it's like your it's like your pelvis. So like I control walking from my pelvis, so it's kind of like feels like I'm doing a bit of a can. But your mind ends up. It adapts. Yeah, you mind's idea it does. It just and it just shows you how amazing the human body and the mind is. Oh yeah. I, I remember having a joke with him once. Tell them how much they cost. Oh, fuck, they <laughs> this is, I remember you telling me this. I was staggered. So tell our audience what, a, had, what a pair of leg costs on the market. Yeah, one of the <laughs> – depending on how you go. Like with the X3, which I had, I do it so fuck so much. It's like 100, 120000 for this knee to get the full system put in. And I took it out surfing with the same mate who I went to Canada and stuff with. And it's like, oh, should we – I just want to go out paddle. Let's go out for a paddle. It's going, yeah, no, yeah, no worries. We'll go out ruins. I'm like, no, nah, dude, there's too many waves. It'll be too big. No, nah, we'll just get, no, yeah, cool. We'll go out ruins then. So we're in his Jeep driving down and I'm like, so let's just go to the Haven. I just want to paddle to get a bit of paddle fitness back up. He's going, cool. Yeah, we'll go to ruins. <laughs> so we go there and I ended up, I ended up like when we're covered, paddling out, we paddled out and I was, I was blowing by the time we actually got out the back. I was just praying for a rest. We got back in, the thing ended up coming off. So like a, we just watched right. It just the eroded end. in the salt. No, no, it just it I, I just slipped. Basically, I just wasn't prepared enough, and it just slipped off. And I'm like, I'm there with like one arm around him. I'm like, get the fucking leg! And then we just look at this leg just vanish off and watch 120 grand. Just <laughs> the whole time I'm thinking, oh no, and I'm gonna have to make like write letters about this and all sorts of stuff. I'm gonna get questioned by by the Department of Veteran Affairs and stuff to and to get another one because I'd actually had to argue for that knee because I knew they were available in the United States and then they were like, oh, we can't get them. And then it was who's who's paying for the expense and stuff like that. So I'd had two years trying to argue to get it. I'd had it and I only had it for like three weeks or something like that. And I'm like, yes, it can get fully submerged in water but it's still got the computer and stuff like that in it. This is brilliant, you know. I'm, I'm aces. And then, yeah, next minute, the, the thing's deep sixed. <laughs> Mate, we're going to touch on some of the amazing stuff you've done, but before we just round off this part of this great story, just take us back to what it felt like to meet your, your company at the airport. Uh, I was, you know, I mean, I can't remember much of the, like the, you never remember the pain that it takes to get to the, I guess the best analogy for it is grand final. You never get the amount, the amount of training or pain, the amount of times that you had to give up a night out with the boys or something like that, but you always remember what it's like to hold that trophy up. You know, I mean, that that was sort of what it was like. It was the guys who you respect so much. And all I wanted to do, my main thing was just, if someone is struggling off the trip, you know, if they're, when they get back, they're not, their mind's not in a good spot, to hopefully give them enough sort of peace of mind for them to be able to rest and sleep. When they get home, because I remember when I first got back from Timor, I couldn't sleep for sort of two days, and I tried everything. I ran, I did everything to try and exhaust myself, and I found the same thing as on the Fiji trip. You know, I came back and I couldn't sleep, so I could only imagine what it'd be like after, you know, the end of the Afghanistan trip. So I was, I was like, all right, I just want that guy. You know, if I can reach one guy and I can make a difference, and everyone, you saw these huge smiles and grins of the dude when I when I stand in there and I had my hand shook. By every single guy that got off the plane, you know, my team stood behind me. You know, it was a really, really cool moment to have, you know, you made. It's quite an emotional experience. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was it was kind of big, you know, to know that you've made people who you respect so much proud. It was a, 
really and standing really behind really you is a mark of respect for you for what yeah you've been yeah kind of like and just my team so just the the six guys and then oh yeah it was six guys at that stage because the guy who i came through kapuka with who ended up getting qualified ended up replacing me on the team so so yeah it was it was a really really moving experience to see that to see that happen you know because you like you could see that it made that sort of positive impact because I wanted to have that sort of impact of, you know, we didn't lose anything while we're over there, you know, and just try and do what I can to block out part of those. Was part of you trying to heal the boys? Like, did you have that compassionate? I can hear in what you're saying and it's even more inspiring. You were kind of worried about what they were thinking as well about you. And is it you trying to deflect, nah, I'm still Damien, like you're trying to assert yourself back as who you really are? Yeah, yeah. and Because who you are is not defined by your ability or your capability. It's who you are really up here and how you're thinking and you wanted to show them that. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then mm. just because you know, I knew that they'd have that because I can't think of how horrific it would have been on the ground that night. So I wanted to try and, you know, maybe if I show them when they first get back, the first thing they associate with Australia isn't what happened there. It's holy. He's just standing there. And look at it. I mean, the last time we thought, they thought the last time they touched me, they thought I was dead. You know what I mean? Like, so then that that was the sort of the feedback I got. You know, the last time they touched me, I thought, well, that's this is the last time we're going to see the guy. You know, and then if I'm standing there doing it, it's it's just a wow. And and that worked. You know, from what from what we heard, gives and me absolute did. goosebumps. Well, we're going to uh, continue the journey on with the great Damien Tomlinson. It's such an honour to have you in here. You're listening to a Kill for Walters with Silky and Bush and our special guest, Commando Damien Tomlinson, with this amazing story. Working, Captain! I need more power! Got an electrical issue? Grant Walker Electrical Services have been providing reliability and affordability to their clients for over 20 years. They're experienced in residential, commercial and industrial fit-outs, large or small. So give them a call on 0415 091 546 or check out their website at grantwalkerelectrical.com.au She's good to go now, Captain! <laughs> 